you have your Bibles open to the book of Exodus, chapter 4, you want to pick up where we left off? Moses. Moses. You know, I was thinking about the events that were all surrounding and, if you will, precursor to the actual exodus. And because the the exodus in many ways is a metaphor for our own salvation, though it was a historical event, and God did deliver his chosen people from slavery in Egypt, in a lot of ways it speaks about and it foretells God's deliverance of us. Our great hope of salvation, our great hope of being free from the slavery to sin. And all the events that surround what God does, we are, for the most part, oblivious to them. And as we study these passages and all that God does in setting up and eventually freeing his people, you would think, God, wouldn't you just take them out? I mean, what's the big deal? Why do you have to do all this stuff? He has purposes that are beyond ours. And when we look back from heaven's viewpoint at our life, we will be absolutely astounded to see how God has worked in our life and used everything, every single element and things that we're not even aware of, juxtaposed them all and put them all together, woven them into a fabric that ultimately leads to our life and our salvation. We have a great God. We have a great God. And so just keep that thought in the back of your mind as we work our way through these chapters to the point where God actually delivers them from slavery and see the parallels, or at least try to see the parallels in your own life as to the great miracles that God has worked. Now we've begun just quickly by by way of review. We know that uh, the main character in this book is Moses, Actually, the main character is God, (laughs) but he's going to work through the life of this man named Moses who has grown up in Egypt, born to a Levitical household, tribe of Levi. Early on, he was under threat of death as an infant. You recall his mother put him in a reed basket, put him in the Nile River to protect him. And uh, as circumstances would have it, or rather God would have it, Uh, He was found by the daughter of Pharaoh, and she adopted him, raised him in Pharaoh's household, so he had the best that life could offer in terms of where he lived, the food he ate, the clothes he wore, the education he got, all that Egypt could offer, he was the prince of Egypt. When he reached 40 years old, he literally came to a point of understanding his purpose in life. Each one of us, you recall, come to a place in our life where we are confronted with our purpose. This is what I was made for. This is why I was created. He does so at the age of 40. He comes to grips with the reality that he sees his own people, the Israelite people who are living in slavery, And he goes out, chapter 2, verse 11, he goes out to see the condition of his people and is moved to try to deliver them. He does so in his own strength, under his own power. All of us have attempted to do things in our own strength and our own power, and they explode in our face. Isn't that true? And this is what happens to Moses. As a result, he kills an Egyptian. He's found out. Now he's thought by Pharaoh himself to be uh, secretly leading an insurrection, and so he's under the threat of death. He must flee to Midian. He flees to Midian, and he meets a man by the name of Jethro, and he will be now a shepherd for the next 40 years. So Moses is 80 years old when we meet him again. We meet him on the backside of of the desert, and he is tending to Jethro's flocks. He's been a shepherd for 40 years. 
and he turns aside, he sees a sight that amazes him. What did he see in the desert there? He saw a bush on fire. Now, normally in the desert, in those dry conditions, in the heat of the desert, in some of those seasons, it would not be uncommon to see a bush spontaneously combust. But what was strange to him was that the bush didn't, not that it was just on fire, but it was not burning up. That got his attention. He turns aside, he goes over and says, I'm going to go check this out. So he goes over the bush, checks it out, and guess what? A voice speaks to him out of the bush. God. God speaks to him, and God then introduces himself. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he gives to Moses a command, and that command is to go back down to Egypt and bring God's people up out of Egypt, deliver the Israelites. Which, of course, Moses very dutifully said, yes, Lord, I'll be happy to do that, no problem. How many excuses did he offer? Five excuses. He had every excuse under the sun, if you will. Those excuses are not uncommon to people when God calls us. Isn't that true? You would think, you would think, when God calls you and says, I want you to go here, we would say, yes, Lord, just in view of the fact of what he's done for us. But the flesh is slow and the flesh is sluggish, isn't it? That fleshly part of us says, we find every reason not to do it. The last reason you recall, he said to God, God, quite frankly, when God had answered all of his objections and questions, he said, God, just can you find somebody else to do this? And that's really the bottom line issue. A lot of times when God's people just do not want to do what God's calling them to do, and they'll say, get somebody else. At that point, the account says that God's anger burned against Moses. Now we pick up the account here in verse 18 of chapter 4. Moses is going, but he's going reluctantly. You don't see him overjoyed saying, okay, okay, I'm going to go. Much like when you are invited to participate in children's ministry and you're picked out. When you're picked out by God, are you overjoyed? Were you guys overjoyed when that happened? No, you, but you went, and you went somewhat reluctantly, didn't you? So the same thing is true of Moses. He's going to go somewhat reluctantly. Now, I'm going to, I want to point that out to you in the ensuing verses, verse 18. You're going, to, you're going to hear his sentiment, and by his very words, how he is still not overjoyed at the thought of going. But nonetheless, he's going to go. God will work with you wherever you are. Okay? He just wants to get you moving. Once he gets you moving, now he can work with you. All right? So let's read these verses. Uh, just chapter uh, 4, verse 18 through 31. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said, said to him, Let me go back to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt, and he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Literally, she threw the foreskin at his feet. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said, so the Lord let him alone. At that time she said bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the desert to meet, your, to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. And then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say. 
and also about all the miraculous signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Moses, out of respect to his father-in-law, Jethro, goes to him and without just taking off and going back to Egypt, goes to him and says, I, I, I need your permission to go. I need to take leave of you. I want to go back to Egypt. There's something curious, however, in Moses' request to his father-in-law, Jethro. There's something curious in the nature of his request. And this will, this will identify what I suggested earlier, that he is still somewhat reluctant to go. He said, I want to go back to my people in Egypt. Had, I should say, had he said, I want to go back to my people in Egypt. Just simply that, that statement. Jethro may have questioned him further. But he doesn't say that. In fact, Moses provides his own motivation for going back to see the people in Egypt. He says, I want to go back to see if any of them are still alive. Now, is that the reason that God said for him to go? No. You see, God told him to go back to Egypt to bring the Israelites up out of Egypt, not merely to see how they were doing. So he's not yet fully invested in this command to bring them up. He's willing just to go down there and see how they're doing, check them out. That's about as much as he's willing to admit to. So why? Why is he reluctant? Why is he reluctant to tell his father-in-law what God had said? Now think about this for a minute. Why doesn't Moses just tell Jethro? He's had, he just had a conversation with God in a burning bush in which God had told him to go down to Egypt, humble Pharaoh and all of Egypt with his staff. Why didn't he just tell him that? What might Jethro think? You've been in the sun too long. You've been with the sheep too long. Have you ever been reluctant to tell somebody some outrageous thing that God has called you to do? I mean, and you're, you're yourself not too sure. And if you're not too sure about going and doing it, are you going to blab it to other people? So you kind of beat around the bush, you kind of hint around, well, I, I think I'm going to go uh, check this out. That's where Moses is. This great man of faith, this great man that God is going to use, is no different than you and I, except that he's 80 years old. Now Moses, Jethro is not going to question him. Jethro says, okay. He figures probably Moses has his reasons other than the, just wants to go see how his people are doing. Now you recall back in chapter 2, verse 11, when Moses had gone out originally, it turned 40, he goes out to see his people and see their condition. And his motivation really is to see if there's anything he can do to help to deliver them from their uh, harsh treatment. He went out and he did what he did. He did it in his own strength. Good motive, wrong time. Chapter 4, verse 18 is only the fulfillment of chapter 2, verse 11. It's the, ex it's the logical extension. Now God is going to invest him with the power and the ability to deliver his people that he originally wanted to do. You and I may see something, we may have a good motivation, and we jump into something. But we're jumping into it impulsively with our own power, with our own strength, without waiting upon the Lord and his time to do what he's called us to do. So in chapter 4, verse 18, now Moses is going to go down to Egypt, ostensibly to see how his people are doing, but in reality he is going to end up delivering his people, 
The main difference now is he's going with God. God will do what Moses, in his own strength, could not do. Huge difference. Moses was not wrong back in chapter 2, verse 11. His motivation was right. He had compassion on his people, but the timing was wrong, and nor was he going in the power of God. Now, in verse 19, God says to him, and seems to imply in this verse, it's a subtle thing, seems to imply that it is now safe to go back to Egypt. It's now safe because all those who wanted to kill Moses are themselves now dead. So we had to wait until all those people died off who wanted to kill Moses before Moses could go back. That seems to put a limitation on God. I'm going to suggest to you that the creator of heaven and earth is not limited. He who is about to dismantle the forces of Egypt, why would he have to wait until those people are dead before Moses... He could use Moses in a great display of his power. So while that verse may seem to imply that it is safe now for Moses to go back, I'm going to suggest to you that's not what it says at all. I'm going to suggest to you that this is simply an announcement to Moses that the first installment of the Exodus has begun. Those who have enslaved the Israelites are now dead. The process has begun. It's the appointed hour. Now is the time. We're going to go. Surely God could take him down there anytime and protect him, right? He didn't need to worry about these people. Now, in verse 21, God tells Moses to perform the wonders before Pharaoh. In verses 1 through 9 of chapter 4, we okay back there? I think somebody fainted. Okay. All right. Where was I? Chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. God gave Moses three miracles, three miraculous signs to perform, did he not? And those miraculous signs were to be performed before the elders of Israel and before the people of Israel to convince them that Moses indeed was commissioned by God to come and set them free. Now God tells him to perform these signs before Pharaoh. Interestingly, God tells Moses that when he performs the signs before Pharaoh, he is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Now if you go back to chapter 3, verse 19, God says that he knows Pharaoh is going to resist. Unless a mighty hand compels him. But now in verse 21 of chapter 4, God will make Pharaoh resist those very mighty acts that in chapter 3, verse 19, are supposed to break Pharaoh's will. So what's going on here? Here's the point. In chapter 3, verse 19... Pharaoh's resistance seems to be of his own doing. In chapter 4, verse 21, it is the will of God. In other words, the hardness of Pharaoh's heart comes from two sources. Now this is important because so many people struggle with God, and what did he do? Is he unfair? And, and they, they struggle with, you know, did Pharaoh harden his own heart? Did God do it? So I want to try to bring a little bit of clarity to this. The hardness of Pharaoh's heart comes from two sources. God is said to harden Pharaoh's heart 
ten different times in the book of Exodus. And I'll leave you to read through the passages up through chapter 14 and find the ten different times. Pharaoh is said to harden his own heart ten different times in those same passages. So in both instances, we see ten times God is said to harden Pharaoh's heart, ten times Pharaoh is said to harden his own heart. Here's the point. God does not take the soft heart of Pharaoh and make it hard. But God will apply pressure on Pharaoh to bring out of his heart what is already in it. Now Romans chapter 9 in the New Testament deals with the matter of God's sovereign choice. Is God sovereign? Is he absolutely sovereign? And so chapter 9 points this out. God is absolutely sovereign. And in chapter 9, the Apostle Paul brings into view Pharaoh's hard heart. So if you have, uh, put your finger in Exodus chapter 4 here and turn to Romans chapter 9 with me. I want these... I want these passages to enter your eye gate as well as your ear gate. Have you ever been tempted to think, tempted, though you would never say this out loud or admit to it, ever tempted to think that God may be unfair? Chapters 9, 10, and 11 are, 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 are a powerful statement of the sovereign purpose, the sovereign will, and the sovereign choice of God. And it's in this context that we see that Paul raises up the example of Pharaoh, the very passages we're talking about. Verse 19, or 14, I'm sorry, verse 14. The Apostle Paul says, What shall we say then? Now he's just talked about God's election, his choice, and so forth. Uh, with respect to Jacob and Esau. He says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. The natural conclusion would be, and he asks this rhetorical question to address this conclusion, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? And notice his response. No way. No chance. Never. God is not unjust. For he says to Moses, now he gives an example, For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, I have compassion on whom I have compassion. Can God do that? It does not, therefore, depend on a man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the Scriptures say to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh, I raised you up for my purposes. Pharaoh, you, I made, created, designed so that I could display my power and my glory and my name would be proclaimed through how your life went. Now this is a mystery. This is a mystery. You cannot figure it out. Let me tell you right now. We're raised with a Western mindset logical rationalism to reason things out. This is why our engineers do so well. You cannot reason this through to what you would call a logical conclusion. Follow. He says in the next verse, verse 18, Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. As we look at that, it goes, oh man, that seems awfully unfair. Hence the next verse. Notice, Paul anticipating that. Now you have to know, Paul himself has got to be having a hard time with this whole issue of sovereignty too. And he can't explain it beyond this. And so he says to us, 
This is where he's at. He says, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? If he is absolutely, utterly sovereign, and it's his choice, and he has compassion, and he hardens whom he hardens, why does he still hold us accountable? This raises the dilemma which has plagued theologians down through the generations and has split churches and created more problems for people. If God is sovereign, how can man be responsible? If God holds man responsible, how can he possibly be sovereign? They're irreconcilable, though people attempt to reconcile them, and when they attempt to reconcile them, they think they've come up with the answer. They create more problems. They create a whole new set of doctrines. This is the danger. And so he says, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? Now notice how Paul addresses that objection. He very simply says what? Who are you, old man, who talks back to God? Who do you think you are? To call God into question. This is not a democracy. It's a benevolent dictatorship. God is gracious and merciful, compassionate, loving, forgiving to thousands upon ten thousands of generations. And yet he will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. How do you reconcile that? with his sovereignty. Stay with me now. Well, who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble uses and some for common use? What? What if God, choosing to show his wrath, and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory? See, that leaves you absolutely speechless. There's nothing you can say. God's choice is God's choice. And yet we're still responsible. So the question comes down to this. Can do, God do as he pleases? Can God do as he pleases? Is his will good, pleasing, and perfect? Is he just in doing as he pleases? Are you sure? Now, this is the place, this is one of those places where you, you run smack into a tension in the Scripture. This, in fact, there's this tension throughout all of Scripture, and the tension is between God's sovereignty man's responsibility. This is where our, our human reason can take us no further. This is where a lot of people get really shipwrecked in their faith because they try to reason through this situation, this tension. You cannot do it. Our human rational capacity is so limited that from this point on, it's an exercise of faith. I have a reasonable, rational basis now to take that step of faith. It's not a blind leap in the dark. I'm not just jumping off a cliff. I'm not just putting my hand in my eyes and saying, well, okay, well, I believe it because you said it. No. There's enough evidence in Scripture over and over and over that testifies to the sovereignty of God and the fact that God holds man accountable. But if you understand those two concepts, they seem to absolutely contradict one another. They don't seem to rationally make sense, and I can't rationally make sense out of them, and I never will. 
This is where my reason is limited, and I must now entertain those things by faith. And there's lots of things in the scriptures you have to do that with. Now, that tension is there for a purpose, I believe. That tension is there for a purpose, not as a riddle necessarily to be solved, as in which is the correct view. And this is where people get tripped up. Well, you're wrong, we're right. This is where you get the whole Calvinist-Arminian arguments, which have created so many problems in the church down through the centuries. It's not which, which view is correct. That tension is there in the Scriptures as a reminder to us as a reminder to us of the truth of what God says in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. And you recall what God said there. God says very simply that His thoughts and His ways are not ours. As high as the heavens is from the earth, this great gulf, this great distance. So his ways and thoughts are above ours. How can you comprehend with a limited, finite, rational mind, human mind, how can you comprehend the infinite mind of the infinite God? God's thoughts, His ways, are far above ours. And at some point, we bow our knee, we humble ourselves, and we say, Lord, okay. I may not understand it all, but I trust you, and I know you understand it all. That's not a cop-out. That's a position of humility. That's acknowledging your limitedness in His infinite mercy, grace, and goodness. You acknowledge that he's a great God. How God deals with the world and how God deals with his people is ultimately beyond our reckoning. Now, it doesn't mean we just throw our hands up and say, well, whatever it will be, will be. That's kesara sara. That's, that's fatalism. That's, the, that's the, uh, the philosophy of Islam. Whatever is, is. No, 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 no. We actively engage our God. We, he has given us a way to go. We walk in faith, in obedience. We are accountable. And somehow, he's still sovereign and makes it all work. I don't know how he does it, but he does it. Now, all of that, that's all of that to, to give some context for this thing of God says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. It's important for us to understand that tension is given to us to recognize and remember again that he is wholly different than we are. Now, related to this concept of sovereignty is the idea of sonship. Israel is described as God's, in verse 22, God's firstborn son. God has sovereignly chosen Israel to be his firstborn son. Not because they were cute. Not because they had anything to offer. You know, we say, oh, that person would make a great Christian. They could really do great things for God because they have the... No, 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 no. God doesn't choose people because of that. He chooses people simply because he chooses them. He doesn't tell us why. We ask God, God, why did you choose me? He doesn't tell you. He simply has chosen you. It's not because you and I have anything to offer. It's not because we're so cute. It's not because we're well-educated. It's not because we got money. He simply chooses us because he chooses to have mercy and compassion on us. Man, I just, I'd drive you into the floor. Now, Israel is not just one nation among many. Israel is a nation of slaves but they are special to God. And God wants Moses to make sure Pharaoh knows it. Israel has a privileged status among the nations. As the unbeliever would say, the person who doesn't understand 
position of Israel in God's economy of things, how odd of God to choose the Jews. And yet they still exist. He has had his hand on the Israelites, on the Jews, ever since he called them into existence. Now, as God's son, Israel has an obligation to serve him. Think about what I just said. As God's son, Israel has an obligation to serve him and him alone. You and I are God's children. God has chosen us. Now we're in his family, and we have an obligation to him to serve him. I remember my son, years ago, Julie and I were sitting, talking, reading one day, and just having a quiet time, and Michael burst into the room, and he said, I know why you had me. <laughs> we had him doing some chores or something. and It dawned on him. I know why you had me. He said, why? Why did we have you? You needed a slave. <laughs> I turned to Julie and said, oh, no, he's figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> I began to explain to him how all, all of us, I said, I have my part, mom has her part, you have your part. We all participate. We're all part of the family. You're not a privileged character. You don't, you're not a guest. You don't just come and go. You have job to do here. And so, as God's son, Israel has an obligation to serve him and him alone. In verse 23, we see that. God says to Moses, go down to tell Pharaoh, let my son go so that he may worship me. Now, God's demand for Israel's release is not simply for Israel to be free from service to Egypt. Remember, they were, they were a fundamental contributing part of Egypt's economy. But they were not only to be free from service in Egypt, they were to be free to serve the Lord. Romans chapter 6, verse 22. Write that verse down. Romans chapter 6, verse 22. The Apostle Paul states it plainly, that we've been saved from our slavery to sin so that we might serve the Lord. We were slaves of sin, now we are slaves to God. You've got to see yourself that way. And that is not a grievous position. To be a slave to God is a great calling. Never mind the Western mindset that we attach to these words and these concepts. Now, what drives God, notice this, what drives God is the love he has as a father for a son. He's pronounced Israel as his firstborn son. I love my son. My love for him drives me to do what I do in his life. I understand something of the love of God for his people. And it's God's love that drives him for his son. Notice Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8. Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. You see the marvelous imagery there. Father and potter. The, the, the concept of a father is not to be divorced from a potter. A potter is not a tyrant. Here's the imagery of a father molding his son, shaping his son, working his son, training his son so his son may grow up and live a fruitful, full, blessed life. Only a father can do that. God does as he wills as a father, acting for the good of his children. Whatever happens in our life, whatever God brings into our life, He uses it to shape us. He uses it for our good, not our bad. Despite in the short run, we complain and whine and moan. We say, why me, why me, why me? When in fact God means for it for our good. I mean, just think for a moment, if you're a parent and you've had to discipline your kids, train your kids, you've had to do something in your kid's life, 
and how often the charge is leveled back against you, that's not fair. And your classic response is apparent. Its response has been echoed by so many parents. I'm doing it for your own good. God would say to us, I'm doing this for your good. You need this. You need this. You need this. Now, in, in the next second, the next three verses, 24 through 26, this theme is played out. So you have to see the flow of thought here. God's sovereignty, he's called Moses, he's going to work in his life, he wants Moses to go down, deliver the people, and now Moses is going to be an object lesson. These next three verses have been a source of great consternation to lots and lots of people who've read them. This is the account of a lesson learned, father to son. Who's the father? Who's the son? Moses, that's right. Now, in verses 24 through 26, despite how confusing the passage may seem, there are three fairly safe assumptions we can make. Let me give you these three fairly safe assumptions. I think you'll agree with them. One, the object of God's wrath is Moses. Secondly, the issue, apparently, is one is the fact that one of Moses' sons is not circumcised. Probably the younger son, Eliezer. We'll meet him back in chapter 18. And the third assumption we can fairly safely make is that Zipporah circumcises this son and as a result appeases God's wrath against Moses. Now you read the account, it seems like those are the three basic things. Let me flesh it out for you a little bit. Let me give you some context for this passage. Verses 18 through 23, where we started up to verse 23, where we just ended. Those verses tell us what God is going to do to Egypt in the subsequent chapters. So when God starts bringing the plagues, all of this up to the last plague, the tenth plague, verses 18 through 23 is just a summary statement. God is going to do to Egypt... Now, verses 24 through 26 tells us something about God and Israel. And more particularly, the importance of circumcision. So that first segment is a summary statement about God and Egypt. The second three verses, 24 through 26, is a statement, a summary statement, about what God is going to do to Israel. And it focuses on the, the central importance of of circumcision. Now, you have to remember that circumcision was a sign of God's covenant. You remember back in chapter 17 of Genesis, God commanded Abraham to be circumcised and all of his male offspring were to be circumcised. This is a sign of the covenant. God's covenant, God's promise, and the fact that, that Abraham accepted it and participated in it, his part was just simply to be circumcised. So he would carry around in his physical body, a mark indicating that he was part of this covenant relationship. It's like when you get married, you put on a ring. It's a sign. Everybody knows it. Now, when you're circumcised, not everybody knows it. But God knows it, and you know it. And so this was, this was a significant sign. It was given to the patriarch Abraham. Now, God identifies himself wants to be known, in fact, introduces himself to Moses. Back in chapter 3, verse 6, when God speaks to him out of the burning bush, he says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God always identifies himself with the patriarchs. There's continuity here. And it's in connection with, to the patriarchs that God is to be known, and it is for the sake of the patriarchs, God's promise to them, that he will deliver Israel. He promised Abraham, I will deliver Israel. They'll be down there for 400 years, but I will deliver them. God is faithful to his word. Now, what's our part? What's our part of the bargain? Well, his, for the Israelite, it was to be circumcised. That's an acknowledgement. That's an acceptance. That's their participation in the covenant. And so this connection with the patriarchs imposes a covenant obligation now on Moses and the Israelites. 
if there's to be continuity, if they're to participate in this, they also are to have that sign, and that sign is circumcision. They will be delivered by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are, therefore, to observe themselves, the command given to them, circumcise your sons. Now, in the same way that verses 18 through 23 foretell Egypt's consequences for not obeying God, verses 24 through 26 foretell Israel's consequences for not obeying the command for circumcision. This was a serious deal, circumcision. This is apparently such a serious concern for the Lord that he is willing to kill Moses over it. I mean, you've got to see this. You've got to picture this. Now, God has just spent an incredible time. He's put in much effort with Moses, has he not? He has just taken so much time and effort to convince Moses of his role. I want you to go down there. And he's dealt with Moses patiently. I mean, Moses can argue. Moses can pout. Moses can whine. Moses can hold his breath about going to Egypt, right? Like a little child. I'm just going to hold my breath. I'm going to die. I'm going to kill myself. Any wise parent doesn't panic, right? Let them hold their breath. They're going to have to breathe anyway. Moses can do all those things. And God deals with him patiently, doesn't he? But circumcision is another matter. Whole another matter. This is very, very important to God. Failure to circumcise meets with swift punishment. Any uncircumcised male was to be cut off from his people. Remember, this is in the context of Israel and the covenant that God made with Israel. This is not referring to us. Somebody came up to me the other night. They said, Don't worry. It's okay. You can just see this, what's going on in the guy's mind. Now the question is, understanding how important circumcision is, and surely Moses understood this, because he has a long tradition. The question is, why hadn't he circumcised his other son? Why hadn't he done it? Was it just an oversight? Let me suggest to you, there's a hint in those verses why it did not happen. Moses had not circumcised his son, apparently because his wife Zipporah had objected to it. You say, well, how do you know that? If you would just look with me at verse 25, look at her very words. Listen to what she says. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Now, does that sound like a compliment? No. And then the, the last part of that section, uh, oh, I'm, I'm over in Romans. I've got to get back to, Gen- to Exodus here. The last part of that verse Verse 26, at that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. The point, I think, that the writer is trying to make here is that at the root of the problem was her revulsion and her disgust with this rite of circumcision. This is a bloody thing. This is a disgusting thing. She doesn't want anything to do with it. Now, she may have objected so strenuously that Moses just gave in to her. He put his wife and her objections ahead of God. And when God struck Moses, her understanding, no no doubt they'd had a few discussions about this. She knew. He gives in. And when God strikes Moses with some severe malady that threatens his very life, Zipporah instinctively connects her husband's malady with the failure to circumcise their son, and so she immediately proceeds to do it. But she does it in anger and disgust. She takes the foreskin, and here's Moses. He's laid out, man. He's in... He's in bed. He's, he can't even move. He's dying. And she takes the foreskin and throws it at his feet in disgust. 
Now, we don't meet Zipporah again until chapter 18, by the way. And in chapter 18, we're told that Moses had sent her away. When do you suppose he, maybe he had sent her away? I think right after this event. Sent her back home to Jethro, taking the two sons. Because now he, he goes down to Egypt only with Aaron. There's no mention of Zipporah being with her until we get back to chapter 18. He's got all the people out of Egypt, and then Jethro comes down to meet him and brings his two sons and his wife Zipporah, who he had sent away. He doesn't need her nagging him and dragging on him like an anchor. He's got to go do God's work. Now, it doesn't mean to put her down. It's just saying, this is where she's at. And God almost kills him for it. How could Moses lead the people unless he himself obeyed God? How could Moses teach the covenant to the people if he refused to circumcise his own son? How could Moses teach the people to love and obey God unless he loved and obeyed God? How could Moses teach the people to put God first if he put his wife first? How could Moses be the servant and messenger of God if he was unwilling to obey God in the very basic sign of God's great covenant, circumcision? God had to correct Moses so that Moses would do what he needed to do. For one apparently small neglect. This is not a small neglect, but it appears to be. We just, it's just passed over. We think, well, no big deal. What's the big deal about circumcision? You have to understand, God counted it a very significant issue. And for one very apparently small neglect, whether out of deference to his wife and her wishes, or perhaps just to keep peace in the home, Moses almost forfeited his opportunity to serve God and waste 80 years of preparation and training. Came that close. Now the next five verses, we close the chapter, verses 27 through 31, are the account of Aaron coming to meet Moses. God had already told Moses that Aaron's on his way to meet him. God had spoken to Aaron and said, go meet your brother in the desert. So now they have this reunion. They haven't seen each other in 40-plus years. And I love how, they, how it's said. And it says, So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. After 40-plus years. What a reunion, huh? And God is speaking to both of them. Powerful. Isn't it sometimes incredible how the Bible kind of understates something? So Moses, now Moses fills in all the blanks for Aaron. He tells him, this is what God has said, this is what God has done, this is what I've been doing, and this is what we're supposed to do. God says this is the mission. So together they go back to Egypt. Aaron speaks for Moses to the elders of Israel. Aaron performs the miraculous signs God had given Moses to do, as God had said he would do, be his mouthpiece. The people listen. We're told they believe. They're on board. And they're moved to worship at seeing that the Lord was concerned for them. When it dawns on you, when you realize that God cares for you, all you can do is say thank you and worship Him. You see, worship, worship is the appropriate response to God's love for them. It is also the ultimate reason for which he is bringing them out of Egypt. The real purpose for which God would deliver Israel was that they may worship him. Moses didn't go down there and say to Pharaoh, let my people go, and that would be the end of it. No, he said, let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert. The point of the Exodus is not simply freedom. The point of our salvation, the exodus God has given to us from the slave market of sin, is not simply freedom. I'm not saved so I can just go do whatever I want to do. The point of the exodus is about God calling his own people back to him in order that they may enter into a relationship 
See, it's all about relationship. A relationship in which father and children are obligated to each other. Does a father have obligations to his sons? Do his sons have obligations to him? Yes. God has an obligation to us now that he's adopted us into his family. That obligation is to provide for us, to strengthen us, to fill us with his spirit, to help us, to grant us wisdom. Obligation after obligation after obligation. But we, in turn, as his children, have an obligation. He didn't save us so that we just go do whatever we so choose. We're saved so that we can come and serve him. This is the context in which you need to view your Christian life. It's a life of service. It's a life of service. It's a life of service. Now, as a corollary to this, there is an issue which every Christian struggles in the relationship. And this is the thing. Here's the, here's the struggle. It's the relationship between grace and works. This harkens back to this, this other issue of tension that I talked about earlier. And most Christians swing from one extreme to the other, or they abide in one extreme camp or the other. By that I mean this very simply. Grace. They live in the camp of grace, and God's grace is wonderful, or where my sin is great, God's grace is greater, so I don't need to worry about works. God just loves me, forgives me, I can do whatever I want. Now, there's, no, there's very few Christians who will actually admit that, though many of us think that. The flip side of that is the camp of works. And this is the camp where we almost, we're so immersed in our works that we forget about God's grace and we find ourselves under a pile of guilt because we're not what we think we ought to be and we're trying to get God to appreciate us and like us and value us if we just do enough works. Now that's the emphasis of most of the world's religion. And that's where we all came from. You know, God likes me because I'm a good person, I do works and stuff like that. So we got those two extremes. The proper perspective is this. It's God's grace that is the basis to view our, way, our works. In other words, Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. We are saved by grace through faith to do good works. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. We are saved by grace, not on the basis of anything we did, but so that we can do. I don't do what I do to get his acceptance. I'm already accepted in him, and because I'm accepted now, my response is to do. Does that make sense? Our deeds, our works, are performed within the context of the father-child relationship with God. And that is a relationship, mark this please, that is a relationship that we have had secured already for us by Jesus Christ. It's already secured by Jesus Christ. We labor not so that God will be pleased with us. That was dealt with on the cross. Rather, God is pleased with us. I want you to say this. Say this right now out loud. Say, God is pleased with me. Say it again. God is pleased with me. Why is he pleased with you? Because you are in Christ. Now again, do you feel the tension? There's something in you. you say, I don't want to say that because I don't think he's pleased with me because I'm not pleased with me because I know I fall short, Right? But this is an issue of faith. Christ has secured this relationship for you, and because you're in Christ, God looks at you as he looks at Jesus. He is pleased with you. <laughs> that just blow your mind? We labor because we are in God's family. 
I'm part of the family. I fit. He's given me a place. I have a role to play. Just as I suggested to you earlier when I told my son, we all have a place in the family. We all have our our jobs. We all have our role. We come to a place of maturity where we understand I'm a member of the body. I'm a member of the body. Where do I fit? What's my role? What's my job? What's my gifting? If you don't know, you've got to find out. But it's all by God's grace, His sovereign, marvelous, wonderful grace. He's delivered you, He's saved you, as He will, we'll see Egypt. But to worship Him, to serve Him, not your own fleshly desires. Amen? Amen. Father, thank You. Thank You for Your mercy and grace to us. Thank you for the great hope that we have. Thank you, Lord, that Moses did surrender to your call. And, Lord, thank you that we will all surrender to your call. Help us, O God, grant us wisdom and courage and strength. We love you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor.